Thanks for tuning in to the Breaking the Frame podcast, where we seek to free our minds from the prisons of fixed worldviews. I'm your host, Travis Mann, and in this episode I speak with Rebecca Fox, a brilliant philosophical comic book artist, author, and podcaster. We cover a wide range of topics, including skepticism, how to change minds, Wicca and chaos magic, and motivation and intention. I hope you find it beneficial. So, Rebecca, welcome to Breaking the Frame. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to. So, Rebecca is a comic book artist, an author, and a creator, and famously a skeptic uh, on her (laughs) podcast, The Seeker and the Skeptic, uh, which is an amazing podcast that really systematically walks through a lot of the things that I care about from the Breaking the Frame perspective kind of new uh, ways of looking at the world, ideologies, and other potentially woo-woo things that might actually uh, expand the ways that we see the world. So today we're going to talk about some of the ways that Rebecca has shifted her worldviews throughout throughout her life. And also we're going to do the Breaking the Frame exercise, and we might touch on some things like atheism and some of the other shared interests that Rebecca and I have both been pursuing. So Rebecca, walk me through a little bit of the different ways that you in the past have viewed the world, because I know that you have a a pretty interesting history. I read your comic, How to Be Reasonable, which is, I think about your, your foray into skepticism and kind of looking at cognitive biases and stuff. What came before that and how did you go into uh, that mode of seeing the world? And then where are you now? <laughs> oh, I don't know where I am now, but I'll, <laughs> I'll think about that. And by the time I finish the story, maybe I'll have figured it out. So um, the first page of How to Be Reasonable, which is just a short little comic, and it's basically an intro to skepticism sort of comic, has me in, um, is a drawing of me because I'm very narcissistic. So my, my main character is myself. Um, and I'm like in suspended in this like um, whirlwind of stuff. And I think in the comic, I call it stuff and nonsense. And mm. it's, it's supposed to be like a little image that um, shows how overwhelming it can be when you don't have a good method for deciding what's true and what's not which is exactly where I was when I found skepticism. When I found skepticism, just the language, it's terrible, isn't it? Born um, again. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in an atheist family and um, like it wasn't a particularly uh, happy childhood. So mm. I was still kind of, I think I was just looking for a way to fit in, in the world, like all teenagers are, I guess. Um, but maybe I had a little bit more impetus than most because I didn't have a stable sort of family or background or any kind of like, I think maybe even, I've thought about it, like maybe even a religion to push against would have been useful, Mm. Uh, but I didn't have any of that. So um, what I ended up turning to was, um, well, general magical thinking, but more specifically Wicca as a religion, which I don't know if you're familiar with. It's uh, Just slightly, just slightly. Yeah, it's a neo-pagan reconstructionist religion. That's like the official title. Um, and it's basically um, nature worship, um, but in its more traditional vein, in which I definitely was, it is um, about, uh, oh, it's, it's such a complicated story, actually. It's about, uh, the, there's kind of like, a, there's thought to be sort of an energetic web 
that is spiritual that overlays our reality and you can manipulate it through use of magic basically um so that was a big part of what i believed and um i was i was because i was feeling a bit lost um this religion purports to be a continuation of the like pre-roman tradition of the british isles which unfortunately it's not although obviously they're drawing inspiration from that so that's nice but um so it felt like a, a, a kind of like a home, like, oh, this is this makes sense because this is this relates to the landscape that I live in. I mean, even though it's not ancient, ancient, it was invented in the 1940s in the south of England, which is where I was growing up. So it is felt that the familiar. reconstructionalist portion of that religion? The fact that they're drawing on the the real or imagined historical religions of the British Isles pre-Rome? That's exactly it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So um, we have... I mean, as I'm sure you know, like the Stonehenge, that's the most famous one, but there's loads of Neolithic monuments all over yes. the UK. Um, there was one very near where I grew up that I had a special like connection with. See, this is funny being a skeptic using those sort of words feels a bit cringy, but I find mm. myself using them more and more lately. So um, yeah. anyway, so I was feeling like that was the place where I went when things at home weren't so good. I would go out into nature and, you know, best case scenario, I'd go out to an actual Neolithic monument and just like, be there and experience feeling connected to something bigger than myself which is mm. I guess what all people who are looking for religion get so I got really into that anyway and um that comes with as you can imagine like that whole spiritual culture comes with a lot of strange beliefs and I think at the time my main like discernment tool was if it made me feel good and it was beautiful artistically then I was just going to accept that as true so I just started like grabbing all these things and ideas and beliefs and myths and just shoving them in my head. Um, and that, that was fine for a while. I went to university um, and um, I ended up studying or studying around the edges sort of postmodern thought. And that kind of was good because it was confirming that it was okay for there to be lots of contradictions in my head, but also was kind of destabilizing because it sort of suggested to me at least the, the writing that I was reading was suggesting to me that there was no objective reality, which mm. is like, ooh, that's a bit intense to go through in your early 20s. Uh, yeah, I told you it was a long story. <laughs> and then I, I love long I moved... stories. This is great. <laughs> okay, I moved to Australia um, to, to continue um, uh, postgraduate study. And uh, I was studying post-colonialism, so that kind of made sense, but it was just an excuse to live somewhere hot, really. <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, and that that was a, that was a big deal for someone obviously who's in an, a religion that is based in one particular island or group of islands to move. I mean, I travelled quite widely before, but to move and live in on the opposite side of the world was kind of like it was weird in a way that I think people who aren't super into acknowledging the passings of the seasons and all that stuff can appreciate because mm. it's not just a cultural shock; it's like a nature shock almost. Yeah, and that's when I started looking into a bit about all the details of where this religion that I was so into came from and started realising that a lot of it was imaginative uh, rather than factual, which was a bummer. <laughs> and uh, and what then, did it uh, feel like? What did it feel like when you, these things that had seemingly helped you through a difficult time in your life mm. that, you know, they felt true. They felt very yeah. real and true to to see those and have somebody say that certain aspects of it were imaginative uh what did that feel like for you 
it felt like the um, experiences that I'd had of like, um, like a profound sort of calmness and peace and happiness with myself and connection to nature. It felt like all that shit was illegitimate. Mm. Like it didn't count because it was based on a lie. That's how I experienced it at the time, yep. um, which is crazy, but I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a black and white all or nothing thinker. So um, yeah. I wasn't at that time capable of taking the good and leaving the bad. Um, and at, this at the same time, I started getting to skepticism um, and skepticism, obviously the more I read and um, engaged with the whole skeptics movement, the more I realized that all the magic stuff. So there's like this, there's kind of three elements, I guess. There's like the, the nature stuff, the sacred history, which is what it's called, which is the idea of that um, lineage through from prehistoric religion through the burning times, which is what they refer to, you know, when a lot of alleged witches were burnt, although they weren't actually burnt in England, but never mind. Um, but yeah, so that, that idea that those, those witches that the Christians said were witches were actually witches in the same way that Wiccans today are witches that idea that's part of the sacred history and then through to whatever we're up to today um and i must like it's interesting because i read all this stuff i didn't have um i guess they just weren't available but the books that are in my local library about wicca were all telling these this story as if it was true and i think now probably wiccans have a much more nuanced view of it but mm. that i only had access to the old books and the old books were much more like no this is what happened um please don't fact check us uh, so, so when you start fact checking, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I felt really cut off from that. And um, I guess I was, um, and also because of that weird dislocation of being out of my natural habitat, <laughs> being in Australia, um, I did try and hang out with some Wiccans in Australia, but they do everything backwards, obviously, because their seasons are reversed. And it was just... <laughs> It was very disorienting. Um, also, um, I've spoken to some friends in Australia recently, and there's a strong feeling that um, the the idea of there being four seasons isn't really relevant to the way, um, you know, ecologically, Australia's weather systems and climate works. Um, the Aboriginal people have three, I think, or maybe six, maybe three divided, and each of them is divided into two, obviously. Uh, probably different Aboriginal tribes have different things. But anyway, they don't think of it as like spring, summer, autumn, winter, the way we do. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then and then I guess at some point, I think I was, I was working and there was a guy I was working with who I didn't like. And he had uh, a conspiracy theory that he was really fond of. And he would tell, it's a tattooist, and he would tell all his, um, all his clients about it. And like when you're getting a tattoo, you can be sitting there for like four hours and you're just this guy telling you his conspiracy theories. And his favorite one was about fluoride, fluoridating water and how that was um, making us all stupid so that the government could control us. That was his a brief summary. He could probably do it much more justice, probably sound much more convincing too. Anyway, uh, yeah, so I thought, well, I don't like this guy. Um, and he has this idea. So I'm going to look into his idea. And I didn't think I was going to confront him. And I never did because I was also a bit scared of him. But I was like, at least I'll know in my head when he's going on about this nonsense. I'll know it's nonsense. And that'll make me feel, you know, empowered or something. Uh, so I did look into it. And then who do I find talking and writing about that subject? It's skeptics. And it turns out they have lots of opinions about all sorts of things, um, including lots of the things that I believed. And that was like my window into skepticism. 
Uh, and I was just like, this is amazing. This is, this is the answer. My brain is so mixed up and I don't know what to believe. And these people have literally got like a prepackaged epistemology and I can just grab it off the shelf. Everything's sorted now. All I have to do is discipline my brain to work in this way and everything will make sense. and Everything will be okay and I'll be saved. And that was How'd it. How'd that work <laughs> out for you? <laughs> Fine for like 10 years. Yep. <laughs> and then lately, not so well. But yeah, I mean, I'm not... Um, I'm not shitting on skepticism. I think it's I think it's very useful, and I don't think I'd be where I was today without you know, without disciplining my mind to some extent because I couldn't have continued using the "if it feels good, do it" sort of <laughs> attitude. Um, if it feels good, believe it. I guess, but um, yeah, I, it's funny. Um, so people doing skeptical activism, talking to groups, people would often say, um, "What about if it doesn't harm anyone?" Like what if someone has a belief and it doesn't do any harm to anyone else in the world, but it's wrong? Is that a problem? And I would always say, well, I guess if it doesn't harm anyone, no. But you have to think about like unintended consequences because all our beliefs are networked up. So you might think it doesn't harm anything, but actually it might be connected to some other belief in your brain. I, I started to think of it and I made a video about this called How to Change Minds as like a Jenga tower of beliefs. So if you have a bad block down at the bottom, and you keep building on top of that, then your tower's going to be all wonky. It's going to be a nightmare. So I go, so although I was like, I would tell my audiences, yeah, of course, like if it's not harming anyone, it's fine. I'd always have this caveat of, but, you know, be careful because things aren't, we can't understand our own brains. Like it's crazy to think we could. Um, so things might be connected in a way you don't anticipate. Giving this advice to audience, but not thinking at all. <laughs> which is very unlikely unlike me because I think about myself a lot I wasn't thinking about how this applied to me like how training my brain to think skeptically about everything might be having unintended consequences did not occur to me at all certainly that's so funny yeah. I love your I love the how to change minds it's like a a video reading of the comic and also there's the the comic panels uh and you can find that on Rebecca's website that for me as I was working on it, started to work on the like exercises for breaking the frame. And then you came on to the Stoa with your series Chapel Perilous, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But I, I looked at your work and I saw how to change my size. I was like, oh, this is this is amazing. So Aww. the idea behind that being that people have these, as Rebecca said, but I'm just going to go into more detail, these Jenga towers of beliefs inside of their head. And when we're conversing with each other and we're like injecting other ideas into people's minds that can either like remove a, and replace a block or just remove one. Sometimes it can make the entire tower fall over. And so in this comic, there are some protectors of the tower. There's the beast and the prince. Can you talk a little bit about the, the beast of, and the prince and what the inspiration behind those two uh, kind of metaphors for our defense mechanisms are? Oh, I think so. And this was a couple of years ago. So um, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, so I got uh, this video was a result of my friendship with Anthony Magnabosco, who's a street epistemologist and just an absolutely lovely man. And we met at a skeptics conference. We were te I was selling my comics and he was talking about street epistemology and giving out information about that. 
and we ended up chatting um, and I learned all about street epistemology and I was just like, this is amazing. This is just such a cool way to engage with people because it's so respectful and it's so interesting and you really get to find out what people believe. Um, so I was, I was, I wanted to create something that was kind of like an advert for street epistemology in a way, um, but made people take seriously this project that a lot of skeptics and atheists and the sort of rationalist type people, I'm doing air quotes, but people can't see them, but I am doing them. Um, those sort of people's, you know, like they, they want to change people's minds. That's like the name of the game. We all want to change people's minds. And it's not just that group, is it? Like any group that has an agenda, like for example, um, I'm a vegan. I was involved in vegan activism for a long time and that's all about changing people's minds. So I've read a lot of the literature on how to change people's minds. Um, but I wanted to think about how, uh, how to do that in, as I said, in a respectful way and in a way that acknowledges the potential dangers. Uh, so yeah, so in my experience of trying to change people's minds, uh, in, like in my arrogant youth <laughs> of trying to, trying to force my beliefs on others, um, I came across uh, these, these sort of ways that which people would try and defend their tower of beliefs. And the first one is kind of like, let's do the prince first because he's the first one you meet and he's basically like the guy who and in my mind i always see uh you know patrick bateman from american psycho uh i, I think i said that in the comic who is that who is it who plays him in the movie patrick bateman it's christian bale yeah bale. yeah oh my god he's so creepy he's perfect he is so creepy it's yeah. so great <laughs> but that wonderful kind of like portrayal that, <laughs> that kind of slimy like he'll give you like he'll tell you what you want to hear you know and he'll contort himself and the name of the game for him and I'm kind of thinking of him as like a an energy that's kind of like possessing the person because they don't want to look at their beliefs because none of us do I'm not saying this is I mean and that's part of the comic as well at the end it sort of turns the mirror around and says hey you also have a tower of beliefs um but none of us want to examine our beliefs it's very like frightening and destabilizing especially if it's um something low down on, on your stack something really important so um he's the kind of he's the guy who will just spit out arguments that are very pleasingly put together that are really hard to unpick but you've got like this sense that either he doesn't really believe them or they don't really make sense but then he'll just fire another one at you and um he's also the guy who will like smooth down any um any differences of opinion between you and kind of like try and move the conversation away he's a politician i suppose yeah. so that's his method of defense it's like the rhetorical sophistry maybe yeah maybe sophist is a is a more intellectual way of describing what i have i like that <laughs> anyway so if he fails um or he's too tired or it's you just hit a nerve and you ask something really difficult that the person can't face then the beast in in my imagination emerges and the beast is just the pure like emotional anger it is i mean it's driven from a place of fear because he doesn't doesn't want you to get close to the tower but he's and he will just do anything like there are no rules as far as the beast is concerned you you are not going to make that person look at their own beliefs and the beast will protect them from having to look at their own beliefs and he will do anything and it's generally aggressive and mean and nasty and it's all the it's it's tricks just like the prince uses but it's like nasty tricks Yes. Um, and then it could be yelling or shouting or hitting, you know, like it's that's the extreme end of people who really won't look at their beliefs is violence, obviously. So, yeah. yeah. So my, my comic is basically 
a suggestion that street epistemology is the only way that I know of to get around those two characters mm. and actually like because you're not talking about the beliefs you're talking about the epistemology so that they're, they're all programmed to defend the beliefs so whenever a question about uh, you know about the historic historicity of the bible comes up they're like oh no we hate this like let's stop thinking about this just for example like to take a christian example because many that's what many street epistemologists are, who they're talking to um but if you ask them about like how they reach their beliefs about what's true in the world that like sidesteps that whole thing and you get to talk to them about how they come to knowledge and how they put their ideas together and that is a much more fertile ground for conversation because it's just not so uh intense that's great this is very interesting because you talked about it on the individual scale what we mm. have going on here in america now you're over you're in london right no or like outside. south of london but yeah not south, far from london south of london so what we have going going on over here in america and actually probably over there in great britain as well is this is being done at scale so you have a, a large group of people who really want another large group of people to change the way that they see the world, to yeah. believe in things like systemic racism, uh, things of that nature, right? And they're, mm. they've made it their project to change people's minds about this. And the tactics are flying all over the place. There are many different approaches. And then you have this other group, the conservatives, who want to conserve. They want to continue to preserve their towers of belief. And it's, it seems as if the, the collective beast has been awakened, right? Yeah. There, yeah. Is, a, there is a political mu movement that lashes out against any attempts to change any sort of beliefs as kind of undermining the individual, trying to remove their agency, and, and that's something that I feel like people feel a lot whenever they feel like their beliefs are being, are trying to be changed in a particular direction rather than just explored, which is why I liked what you said about street epistemology is just being in a conversation with somebody and exploring those things and maybe questioning, not from a place of trying to show them why they're wrong, but from a genuine like exploration, that kind of relational way of talking mm -hmm. that has in my experience been more effective, but that can't happen at scale. Yeah. And so what we see is there's this entire group, the beast has been awakened. And then there's this other group who, man, they're really, they're trying to change the way that they think. I don't know if you've thought about that at, at the, the level beyond the individual, but. Well, well, and what it made me think when you said it can't work at scale, um, and I don't know, but I suspect that the street epistemology community are working on some way to make it work at scale. I believe um, it. Yeah. yeah, I've I've heard um, nothing specific, but I've heard people talk about like um, politics and how um, just like being reached out to by various factions, political mm -hmm. factions. Um, and I imagine that is like top of their agenda. I think the problem, the, what the th one of the like the key early parts of the street epistemology sesh or whatever you want to call it um is like uh you build rapport right so you have to have this bit where you're like hi i'm a human being um you know you're a human being we both eat and drink and you know 
we're on the same level. Yep. Uh, that's a really, really important. It's like, and it's always in, like, if you get an instruction manual for how to do SE and they are available online, that will always be an early stage. And um, for lots of people, they might be like, well, that's obvious. But actually, it's like, it's potentially the most important stage. And that is obviously what people miss out when they're engaging online. You don't nice. get to, I, and this is not an original thought. Lots of people have said this, like you don't see people as other human beings when they're just usernames. And um, I think that's that's that would be the key obstacle to making street epistemology work on a mass scale. Like how do we recognize the humanity of each other when we can't make eye contact? Yes. Like, cause Indeed. we're very, ancient simple human creatures aren't we like yeah. um that that's how we that's how i know you're a person because i see your eyes for sure even me and like my friends i mean paul who i had on the first episode of the podcast he'll post something on twitter i'll have a different take even mm. when i post those things it feels it feels anonymized in a way where i know that he can't see my face he can't tell the tone with which i'm that i'm writing in and yeah. it, it could be misinterpreted. And this, this is my good friend, somebody I talk to yeah. on a weekly basis. And we have differing opinions on things. And, and that's fine between us. But when we do it in a public forum, I think that a lot of people might look at my responses and be like, oh, he's like picking at Paul's scabs or yeah. something. So, yeah. Yeah, I think about the way I engage with my friends. Um, like... I kind of have, I mean, it's a classic sort of British thing. We love to banter. That's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. It's just constantly like joking and making sarky insults, basically, at each other. But it's yeah. all underneath. There's like this sub substratum of love and affection and of knowing mm. it's safe to do this. Um, and like you would never make that joke at someone's expense who you didn't love sort of thing. Um, and maybe I'm just defending bullying all my friends, but I think they'd agree with me. Um <laughs> And yeah, if if, so, if an observer was to look on that from the outside, they'd think these people are very, very strange and not very nice to each other. But yes. from the inside, you know it's different. And uh, maybe that's something like um, creating smaller communities like Peter's doing with the Stoa, yes. where you've got like a bunch of people on the same page. So you're going to go into that situation giving everyone the benefit of the doubt yeah. and assuming that they're not a horrible, like, bigger of any stripe because otherwise why would they be and i mean obviously there there are risks to that behavior because then you might not spot the bad guys who are actually out there but mm. i think the benefits outweigh the risks because i mm. don't i mean i don't know who this is just completely my feeling about the world and it's not really based on anything um but i feel like there really aren't that many evil people like the, or any maybe I feel like everyone is trying to do their best and sometimes they've just got mixed up with some really bad ideas and if you can kind of approach people in that spirit uh, but it's not very cool it's not like it's not fun it's not revolutionary to be like hey guys let's all be nice to each other um, yeah so I actually I wanted to, yeah that, that brings me that brings us perfectly to something that I wanted to talk about in terms of like motivation or intention so for me that is one of the, the primary things that'll shape a situation. So I think that depending on our motivation, we could do the exact same action. And depending on our motivation, we might end up with different results because of just very micro things like the mm. facial expressions, the body movements that we use when we're conversing with someone. Those sorts of things can make the difference between a contentious discussion 
were a smooth and enjoyable one. So something that I find interesting. So you wanted to change people's minds, let's say with uh, about veganism, for example, right? And I mean, I've studied this. There's, There's a compelling ethical argument, a very compelling ethical argument based on studies that are done on animals and the types, the ways they experience emotions, pain, things of that nature to that. If we brought some more empathy, I think that people would be eating a lot less meat and a Mm. lot less animal products. But when we approach them about that, oftentimes what they're trying, what people will see when they're being approached in that way is like, oh, this person has this agenda or that agenda. This is their motivation. So for you, what would you say has been your motivation throughout each of these stages for wanting people to change their minds? Okay, so I had this idea. um, And I think I could probably, uh, you know, rummage around and find some rationalizations for it Mm -hmm. that might or might not be convincing. Um, but it's just like, it's, it's my, it's my idea about the world. Um, or at least, yeah. Okay. So it's, it's an idea about the world, which maybe I'm questioning more now. Um, but I think is that perhaps you could say it's broadly correct, which is, um, our, our, in our minds, we create a map of reality. Like we don't have access to what's really real there. We're just looking at it through our sense data and through all that sense data, we build up a nice little map. Um, and the map is what we use to navigate the world, right? So if your map is dramatically different from what the world looks like, life is going to be more difficult for you. Yeah. And if society's collective map that we've all put together is very different from the real world, then life is going to be diff- difficult as a society. So I had, I had this idea that what the project of skepticism is, is to give to empower people by giving them the tools <laughs> this is my like my sales pitch so i have to say in a slightly higher pitch voice than usual um yeah to empower people to like be able to to create accurate maps of the world and then with those accurate maps they will be better able to deal with like their own lives and making decisions i mean skeptics talk about this all the time but the reason we talk about it is because it's so important like in the world of healthcare for example there's lots of people selling things that don't have any scientific evidence to suggest that they work and they're selling them to people who are very sick for lots of money. So that's a big issue that skeptics have for obvious reasons. Um, But if they had a more accurate map of the world about how medicine worked, perhaps they would be be able to make better choices. Um, So that's, that's just one example of many. Um, The problem of course is that, our brains aren't big enough to build a map of the entire world or in enough detail. So there are always going to be gaps in our maps. And I mean, so there's, there's two different approaches to that, which is one, if I don't know what's there, then I can just make up a story that is pleasing to me, which isn't as, as nuts as it sounds. I mean, it's what we all do. Or you can say, if I don't know what's there, I can just have like a a blank space on the map and be agnostic about that area. Mm. Um, which sounds more sensible perhaps than making something up, but it's actually very, very hard to maintain, to genuinely maintain authentic agnosticism because there's always some little like idea or notion that's popping into your head that seems interesting yes. to fill that space. So that's kind of like, that's the wall I came up against perhaps, or one of the walls um, 
in skepticism is I I realize I don't think I ever I mean I wasn't arrogant enough to think I could know everything but I kind of maybe did on some level think I could know everything if I just worked hard enough at it yes um, and read enough and um, schooled myself and learned how to read scientific papers and like really like pushed myself I could somehow get my accurate map um so that that's what I'm selling and this is what I used to talk about in vegan activism as well is I think a lot of the reason why people um will you know just default to the norm which is eating meat obviously in our culture um is because they're not they don't have an accurate map of reality they don't know that animals are conscious for example or whatever like there are all sorts of things they don't there are issues like actual facts about the world that they don't know and if they knew them then they would be empowered to make a different choice which conveniently is the choice that i've made (laughs) yeah yeah this is very interesting yeah, so I wrote I wrote about this on my on the Breaking the Frame website when I sat down to kind of break the the this is a loaded term but the manifesto of Breaking the Frame and mm-hmm. and why I was doing the project and what what it would look at the one of the very first things I wrote about was models and analogs so rather than using a map analogy I use a a model analogy so I think of things in kind of systems language more so. Uh, than like map versus territory. Uh, Mm. Because with map and territory, I think that what you get is this sense that the map is an an okay picture and you can have gaps, right? But at least you have some sense of the the area of the map that's been explored. You have some sense of what that map should look like. And once you actually go to the territory, then you have that experiential knowledge of what that territory is like. So my my way of thinking about this is a little bit different. I think that what we're dealing with is there's a, a pretty complex system out there in this world. And it's so interconnected that even if you have a good view of one part of the system, it's so interconnected that the parts of the system that you don't have a good view on could influence the part that you do have a good view on so much that you don't actually understand the part that you have a good view of. And like you said, because our brains really aren't complex enough to model the complexity in the outside world, I really just don't see how we can come up with a, an accurate picture of knowing like this leads to this and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. The other thing that you said that I wanted to touch on was the the idea of facts. So I've been talking about this a lot on Twitter, having a back and forth with people. Uh, there was an article that was written. It's called The Facts Man. And it was a, a sarcastic, semi-satirical article making fun of the type of people who come online. And they list a litany of facts under any sort of interpretation uh, any sort of opinion, they'll just start throwing out what they refer to as facts, right? Yeah. And so I take issue with this sometimes over the fact that, over the fact that, <laughs> there, in my experience with reading scientific articles and things of that nature, there are very few facts to be found. There's a lot of data. And out of that data, we can make reasonable interpretations. Those reasonable interpretations then oftentimes get taken up as facts and used to bludgeon people over the head with. 
right? Uh, yeah. And some there are people out there who who think that if I just know all the facts, then that'll you know then I'll have an accurate model of the world and I'll be able to go around and nothing will ever dupe me. You know, I'll always be able to make sense of everything, things of that nature. And yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. me or that was me. Yeah. Yeah. For I sure. mean, I wasn't bludgeoning people, I hope, yes. but yeah, that, that is the kind of attitude I had towards myself, for That's sure. very interesting. And so back to the, the motivation piece, I think that at least for me, you know, I had this revelation one time while I was on a, on a, a trip, in air quotes, <laughs> uh, that some of the reason why I wanted to push my worldview on people and have them participate in that worldview with me was so that I felt understood and and not alone in the world. So that's a yes, that's a yeah, potential yeah. motivation. Uh, and I thought about that, and I was like, especially from my time doing solitary retreats and things of that nature. I thought, I I think I've practiced enough now being alone that I'm okay. Mm. And that was a that was a revolutionary moment paradigm shift in my motivation of relating to the world, not needing to be understood in that way, and therefore not pushing my beliefs and worldviews on other people. Yeah, that 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 resonates really deeply. I was just thinking um, every so often, and it is quite rare because um, we're kind of on the same page about a lot of things, but every so often my husband will say something that I think is just factually untrue um he's he's more prone to like experimenting with the edges of the more reasonable conspiracy theories than i am for example and he just wants to explore the idea but i have this emotional reaction that's very strong i get very very upset and like there's anger there and there's i mean underneath it all there's fear and the fear is oh god he's drifting away from me (laughs) that's it like i want him to i want to be understood i want us to be in communion which means we have to I mean, in my crazy brain, I'm not saying this is actually true, but in my brain, I think we need to agree on all these things. Otherwise, yes. like how are we going to get, I wrote a story, um, a short comic, uh, it's called Pillow Talk um, in my first book. Um, my first, it's like a collection of short graphic stories about doubt. Um, and it's the question that it raises. There's, there's two women and they've spent their first night together and everything's gone gloriously. And then in the morning they end up, talking about religion and philosophy and stuff and they realize that their epistemology like completely different and the question that the text is supposed to raise is can this work and i've i've shown this to lots of people and i've had different like some people like oh i don't even see the problem they seem to be two lovely ladies having an argument like uh, like they're obviously they're going to get on fine um and some people said no obviously it can't work you can't have this two people coming from completely different perspectives. Um, and that was my perspective. So I tried to keep myself neutral as a narrator of it, but I really thought that that was like the fundamental thing about relationships is that you yeah. needed to have the same epistemology and you can come to different conclusions, but having the same epistemology was key. And actually um, working on my podcast with my podcast partner, who, you know, the very title of the podcast suggests is not on the same page epistemologically. She's the seeker. Um, has made me realize that this is one of the most fulfilling relationships I have in my life, like because we're so different. So, um, yes. so yeah, I think that that like there's an emotional um, motivation for those facts men, facts men, 
facts, 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 people. Um, for us, facts, people, there are uh, emotional motivations that running underneath that we're not aware of, um, or only dimly aware of that we could probably do better. I have been trying to talk to skeptics about this. Actually, I've given a couple of talks. Oh shit. I have no idea what that was. I mean, it was, it was obviously a fire alarm, but I don't know why it went off. Oh, and shit. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> it seems to calm down. That's very odd. It's I never done it. that before. Like if I burnt something on the hob, then it goes off, yes. obviously. But it's never just done like Okay, Ooh. for all of our US listeners, what the hell is a hob? <laughs> oh, um, those things that make fire on the top of your oven? What do you call them? A stove. Yeah, but like the top bit. That's the stove. That's the stove. What's the un- What's the bottom bit? The oven. Okay. So in in yep. our parlance, the whole thing is the oven, and then it has a hob okay. on top. I don't know why it's called hob a hob. On top. I love it. <laughs> and we're really educating people yeah. now. Now you know. The this more you know. Great. The more you know. <laughs> That's great. Okay. What do you think is a... So I have my own delineation, but I don't want to prime you. What do you think a a reasonable motivation would be that would actually get people to potentially change their minds um well i think i think although i think it's incomplete i think the story about models or maps or whatever you want to call them is to some degree useful i do think that the map i have of the world is better than the one i mean there are other factors of course in this but better than the one i had in my early 20s when i believed in many mystical and supernatural things and which which caused me distress as well because like i believed in things not just the fun bits i believed in some of the scary bits too um uh better for uh, navigating the world in in that like when something terrible happens to me i don't suspect that it's because there's some kind of force that is Mm -hmm. like plotting to destroy me um so you say more in line with more in line with the way that things are well, the way that As the better consensus assessment. reality, maybe we could call it. Consensus reality, okay. Um, and actually, uh, that's another sort of idea that I have, which um, probably could stand up to some scrutiny, but not complete mm. scrutiny, is that uh, like all these things like intuition and um, uh, all those like other ways of knowing that are not the good old reliable scientific method um, will, will take people off in, in quite individualized paths. Or maybe like there's a whole group of people who are using, like if it's a religion, then they're all on doing the same thing in that yep. direction. But it's like, it kind of like separates people. And it's quite nice to have one thing that we can all agree on. So we can all debate back and forth about like what our favorite flavors are. But we all agree, you know, I don't know that the sun is made of plasma or whatever the sun's made of. I don't know, yes. like, and, and that's that's because we've all sort of deferred to this one method of knowing, um, and I think that's useful um, on the, on the and then the reason why it upsets me when my husband says stuff that I think is a bit dodge is because I feel like as a family, <laughs> small family of two and two cats, we all, like, at least we're all deferring to this same thing, and we can meet there. It's like a place to meet, I suppose, um, yeah. that we all have you in common. You think the cats are? definitely yeah i mean i've put like little books out in front of their food bowls and i see them studying them you know like i don't know cats. you have some skeptical cats yeah, in your yeah. house oh. well i'm trying to educate them but yeah um yeah so i yeah so maybe something about bringing people together under one uh i don't know what you want to call it like one way of knowing uh you could mm. i mean you could even like what i'm saying sounds a lot like the sort of arguments people make for christianity doesn't it 
Nike. It does indeed. It, let's all let's all get on board with this meta narrative, and everything will be fine. So yeah, again, like absolutely. I recognize the limitations of my arguments. Um, and then and then the, the more like prosaic, just straightforward things, which again, I mean, they may seem obvious to everyone, but there are a lot of people falling for scams and getting seriously, seriously hurt in horrible ways. And I think mm. often, um, I feel like especially dealing with like you know, the cool kids who hang out at the store, <laughs> those sort of people, uh, yeah. they, they're kind of dismissing this stuff because they're like, well, no, I'm not dismissing. Maybe I'm projecting, but there's a sort of attitude of, well, no one no one like us would believe in that sort of stuff. That's, that's stuff that, you know, it's not part of our lives. I always feel embarrassed talking about the things that I used to believe in because they were so wacky. Um, but I know lots of people who believe things that hurt them every day. Um, so oh, yeah. tidying up those sections of our brains when we have genuinely, like, I mean, as much as anything can be said to be false, believing that homeopathy will cure cancer, that's something that I would put a lot of money on being false. Yep. And I would, I would really like it if everyone else realized that or came around to my point of view on that, because I genuinely see people get hurt. I mean, yes. And that's, that's an easy example. Yes, absolutely. What I'm what I'm hearing to put it in in uh, the language that I'm familiar with is there's there's a bit of mixed motivations yes. that are going on, and what it boils down to is on some level, oftentimes conflicting beliefs can pr- prompt some sort of discomfort inside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, either we feel misunderstood and alone, which, as we know, we have a strong social component as humans, most of us, and any idea that we might be uh, ostracized from our in-group, it it can prompt a very severe emotional and physical reaction in us. So there's that individual and what I would call a self-centered, not in an extremely disparaging way, but Mm. certainly it's centered around the self, regulating this mind-body system to try to stay in as pleasant a place or mind state as possible, that that kind of prompts some of the action. And then there's a genuine care and concern for the well-being of others. Yeah. Uh, And I think we see this at play a lot. And I think oftentimes what people, people are very good at sniffing this out. Surprisingly, they have some sort of intuition of, is this person operating from a self-centered mode where they're trying to, you know, regulate their own mind-body system to stay in some sort of pleasant equilibrium where they're not afraid of, you know, what some other person's experience of the world is, or do they genuinely care about my well-being? And I think those two will produce just very distinctly different outcomes if we enter into a conversation uh, around any given topic. Even if we say the exact same thing, I think the way in which we would say it would be interpreted differently. That's that's my hunch. Yeah, uh, I'm really tempted it's pretty to get plausible. like a, um, yeah. a big board and put all the photographs of famous skeptics that I know and then make three yeah. categories and start moving them around because there are definitely people who come from more of one angle than the other. And obviously the yeah. compassionate one is the one that everyone wants to be from and that's the one that sounds super nice. But I recognize yes. aspects of myself in the other two as well. And I think the other thing is like, I've noticed, and this is not based on any like proper research or anything, but I think most people will share this observation that there is, there's a lot of people who are less um, socially adept in the skeptic movement. Um, yes. I, I, I recognize um, I have people with autism in my family and I recognize traits in myself 
and I recognize them in in the skeptic community at large and I think there's this tendency to conflate being empathetic with being a good person and I just think that's absolute bullshit Uh, I mean as as a you know a Buddhist type person not maybe a Buddhist, but, you know, familiar with that stuff. You know, like the difference between empathy and compassion is huge. And I see a lot of it compassion is. in the skeptics community. But I do think that perhaps we're a little bit lacking, lacking on empathy sometimes. There are advantages mm-hmm. to that, of course, because empathy is not like, it's not correct. Like empathy leads us to make all sorts of terrible mistakes, like, um, you know, favoring people who look like us or like share our skin color yep. and stuff. We empathize more with them. So there are some advantages to getting rid of empathy or not getting rid of empathy. <laughs> but you know I, I get you I'm picking up yeah. what you're laying down yes yeah yeah yeah. so um yeah anyway so I think when um looking it's it's a strange feature of the uh these sort of tribes that we've fallen into on the internet basically that like yeah. tracks like and not just in oh we agree philosophically but there are certain like personality things that are attracted to each other um yes and and that's that's an aspect of why I was attracted to the skeptics community because I was like oh these these people they're not like hiding stuff because I feel like with um, the normies there's always like the subtext that I don't get to what they're saying and it's like yes. it, it's, I'm not I mean I'm not terrible at it but it just takes like a a beat to be like oh I see that's like that's code for something else that I didn't immediately pick up on but skeptics don't do that oh obviously they do because everyone does it's a human thing but maybe it's minimized yeah. a little bit more in that community and people are like pretty clear about what they're saying and you know ideally can back up what they're saying with evidence or put like a little asterisk um saying I can't back this up with evidence by the way this is just my idea yes. so and I really like that yeah. clarity of communication and that's one of the reasons I was drawn to that community um Oh my God, I'm thinking so, like just telling the story of being drawn to Wicca because it made me feel safe and fit, made me feel part of something and made me fit into a bigger system. And then the story of skepticism because it made me feel safe and made me feel part of something and made me feel like I had access to a big, like, hmm, suspicious similarities. <laughs> it's very interesting. I mean, yeah. this is this is what I always try to draw attention to in the breaking the frame exercises mm. is, are we are we pursuing similar mental patterns as we navigate through new ideologies? Yeah. Right. Have I gravitated towards this new ideology for the same reasons that I gravitated towards the original one? And what sort of risks does that pose Mm. uh, in terms of my grasping at particular ways of making sense of the world? And that, that can keep us mired in understandings that don't serve us. I can really harm ourselves and others. So that's kind of my motivation behind the whole thing. No, it's, it's interesting because this is kind of how um, we ended up um, converging on a very similar idea at the Stoa. Um, yes. But I couldn't engage with your idea because it was happening in the middle of the night from my perspective. Because <laughs> um, yep. uh, this is kind of what Chapel Perilous was about. It was about exactly. let's not take on a new ideology. Let's stop this this cycle. And try and get yes. comfortable with a sort of what I would call radical agnosticism. And by radical, I mean like root agnosticism, not like, mm. you know, I don't know, leather jackets yes. and motorcycles or whatever radicalism means to you other than that. <laughs> that's actually just my normal life is, <laughs> motor, is leather jackets and motorcycles. Well, that's acceptable yeah. if you actually ride a motorcycle. I um, do indeed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's but funny. Not- so, yeah, talk about Chapel Perilous. So... 
Chapel Perilous. It's uh, uh, an idea originally posed by Robert Anton Wilson, who is a, a writer and social prankster <laughs> in the 60s, uh, wrote for Playboy and was just uh, a pretty big part of the counterculture movement, but not one that is as heavily lauded as like Timothy Leary and stuff like that, even though he was he was in with those same people. Mm. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about Robert Anton Wilson's idea of this sure. kind of radical agnosticism and, and Chapel Perilous and then talk about your development of the exercises you did at the Stoa? Yeah, I um, I hadn't heard of Robert Anton Wilson until I was preparing an episode of, um, of The Seeker and the Skeptic about magic. And I had chosen for myself as a research topic, chaos magic, because it sounds cool basically didn't really know anything about it uh, so I started reading around that subject and um Robert Anton Wilson is referenced constantly all over that literature so I was like oh I better go and read his book um and the book that I picked up was Cosmic Trigger where he brings up Chapel Perilous and in that book he describes it as I mean, it goes the, the map and the territory thing um yeah. is there is something like um the moment when you realize that your map is inadequate for the territory and you're completely lost it's that moment where you yeah. don't know if what you what you believe or what you think or what you perceive is real or if it's just your brain playing tricks on you he sort of uh the book is a it's a really good book um uh and in it he immerses himself in all these different conspiracy theories and sort of loses a grip on reality but he manages to maintain a sort of equanimity or find an equanimity despite not having like a complete map like so and i was like well this is what i need this is um, you know, this is perfect for me. Um, and it's surprisingly, like, there wasn't that much woo. It didn't, like, I because I read a lot of stuff for a podcast. We cover all sorts of strange topics, you know, past life regression, yeah. aliens, angels, also, like, all sorts of strange things. And I read all the literature. And every time I actually find something incredibly valuable in there somewhere. Um, but this was, like, I was, I was not expecting this book to speak to me in the way it did. And then I started researching Chapel Perilous because it's just such a cool term. It's not Chapel Perilous. It sounds spooky and interesting. Like, and it turns out it wasn't actually his um, invention. Uh, it originally appears in the Grail romances. I have a background in English literature. That's what I studied. So this is the direction I tend to go when I start looking into things. Um, so yeah, so like uh, your um, hero would be going on his Grail quest and he'd be going through this wood and it's all spooky and, you know, like intense because, I mean, another interest of mine is ecology and the history of ecology. And like the British Isles used to be covered in this incredibly dense woodland uh, that they called the wildwood. So it's like this. Yeah, everything's like swirling in on itself. And it's like it's very intense and hard to get through. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that that was the our hero going through the woods like that. And he's looking for the grail and he's tired and it's getting dark and all seems terrible maybe it starts to rain it usually does and then he sees this chapel through in a clearing and it's like this kind of like a dilapidated building and he goes in there and um spooky shit happens basically like there's disembodied hands there's like bodies coming to life it's just like this but it's 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 a pause in in the story is this like in uh monty python and the holy grail when our hero enters the chapel and it's a bunch of nuns who want to be spanked (laughs) would that be (laughs) Would that be Chapel Maybe. Perilous? Oh, I should rewatch that. For a chaste Yeah. Yeah, for a chaste night. Yeah. I mean, that certainly is Temptation, a Chapel Perilous. Yeah. Um anyway, so that's that's our first uh, iteration. And then it um 
crops up again in the wasteland. I love T.S. Eliot. Um, it's not by name mm. in the wasteland, but there is a reference to a chapel. And if you read the notes to the wasteland, then it's that's what he was he was thinking about. Uh, and at that, I'm like, the wasteland is one of my favorite poems. It's it's just an epic. Uh, it feels post-apocalyptic in tone because he's basically well but he's not basically anything it's an incredibly complex poem but i feel like it's uh it's all about the death of old certainties like the war has destroyed everything all hope and like how are we gonna i don't know like how do we progress from here is it possible to progress from here are we even human anymore these are like the stuff and then chapel perilous being that space of unknowing fits at least in the story that i'm telling that i'm putting together between these things then i think there's like a play or something yes. which i never had time to look up because i was just like in a frenzy i was so excited about this chapel perilous idea and i was uh, i mentioned it to peter and he was like do some workshops on it i was like okay and he's like next week and i'm like oh shit so i was like uh, so uh, <laughs> that's classic yeah. peter yeah uh anyway so um yeah so i didn't get a chance to look into the the play i'm sure it's amazing i'll probably come back to it at some point because this is a project that is kind of ongoing uh and then and then to robert anton wilson and his your map is inadequate for the territory what do you do um so because because the way i'd come through to it was via the chaos magic route and just as i said with everything all the esoteric woo stuff we look into that's valuable stuff in there and one of the really valuable things about chaos magic i think is they're like these brain training exercises that they're really into mm -hmm. um Okay. The first one that doesn't sound that tempting um, that I could think of, because we also we did an episode on Alistair Crowley, and um, it was amazing. We met these thalamites. They're such interesting people. Um, they're very displeased with us on the internet now. But the real thalamites we met in real life like us, but internet thalamites, not so keen. Anyway, it's, it's a, side, a side note. But um, one of the Alistair Crowley's things was he was trying to decondition himself from... Um, looking at things through one perspective through the eye and so i think this was a suggestion from one of his mentors maybe someone involved in i don't know one of those societies that he was involved in anyway it doesn't really matter but the idea is was ever, whenever he said the word i he cut himself with a razor blade mm. yeah Sweet i know Jesus. well that's <laughs> alistair crowley for you right he's a maniac <laughs> um yeah he's a very yeah. wild wild character so the idea was to decondition you and i you know that would do it pretty quickly i went for a course of cbt once and um the therapist told me to put an elastic band on my wrist and snap it every time i had a negative yep. thought same idea but much safer <laughs> but probably less effective i don't know anyway so and then the, the modern um chaos magicians like people like peter carroll um who's a very interesting man um they talk a lot about um how you can control what you believe about the world. And he specifically mm -hmm. talks about um, this project of deconstructing your personality and like seeing what's left yes. at the end of it. Uh, it's something like um, the more things you believe are true about yourself, the more limited you are. That's kind of his perspective. Uh -huh. Anyway, so the, the, the chaos magic thing is all about training your brain. So I've got that and I've got Chapel Perilous and, I, and this links to me to stoicism, which I'm sure a lot of the stoic people would not appreciate, but it's a similar sort of um, philosophy in many ways. Um, although I haven't heard anyone yes. else mention this so maybe it's not as clear a connection as it seems in my brain. But um, like Thelemites are all about finding your true will, which is like your purpose, the thing that you're best at, the thing that you're gonna pursue, um, what you're supposed to be doing and then ignoring all obstacles 
and training your telos. Yeah, exactly. Training your brain to be on track, on that track, to follow your yes. true will. I mean, it sounded like the sort of thing that a Stoic would have told me. Um, or a virtue, or a virtue ethicist. I mean, yeah. this is I yeah had a conversation with Andrew Taggart the other day. We talked a lot about telos and purpose and things of that nature. So. Yeah. But what I love about the the chaos magic people who are inspired, obviously, by the Thalamites and that whole Western mysticism tradition is that they have practical exercises to try and bring mm. this stuff into people's lives. It's not just like airy-fairy, I don't know, philosophical masturbation. It's like, let's get down here on yep. the ground and do it. Uh, so that's what I wanted to do with Chapel Paralysis. I wanted to talk to people and say, hey, guys, have you noticed um, you can't really be that sure about anything? Like, is anyone else in this situation? So it's like nice to to have that moment of like people being, oh, like, yeah, 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 me too. Like, oh, thank God, it's not just me. Um, and then uh, try and work through some, try and develop some exercises that would uh, like give us little small doses of uncertainty. Because I think mm. this whole, I mean, I think my problem and probably a lot of humanity's problem is that we have this, intolerance of uncertainty and I think it's obviously some people have it more than others and I have it to the max <laughs> or maybe not to the max maybe some people have it higher but I feel like it's a pretty and I, I looked into this and it's it's not just like a a, th a thing I made up it's like a, it's a thing psychologists study um apparently oh, yeah, yeah it's a, they call it a cognitive vulnerability that can lead to um, generalized anxiety disorder, which sounds pretty familiar, and OCD, which is not quite so familiar, but not a million miles off. Yep. So yeah, so like this is this is a problem, and um, obviously on a, like a personal level, it leads to this like just identity calcification where you're like just stuck in this one thing because it's too scary to imagine other possibilities, so you just stick with this one certainty. And then it causes the social problems that we were talking about earlier, where you just can't empathize with anyone else because you're so stuck inside your own, you're so certain that your position is correct that you just can't, yes. yeah, you can't relate to other people. And then the other piece I think is, um, I think it's one of the contributing factors towards this thing that everyone's calling the meaning crisis. It's so hot right now. Um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, we're like, we're desperate for meta-narratives for certainty um and so we are like all hopped up out there looking for certainty in a kind of desperate frenzied way and i mean obviously i don't know no one knows but i don't actually think it exists so i think the meaning crisis yeah. is a search for something that doesn't exist and that's always going to be like not a good idea uh, a grail a grail quest yeah perhaps? yeah exactly ah you're on yeah, yeah. you're in my narrative yeah, yeah exactly so yeah this right. so yeah that's that's kind of and then I, I worked out a few little exercises based on drawing from the occultism drawing from cbt stoic practice all those sort of things feeding in and came up with practices that to be honest are pretty similar to what you were doing on breaking the frame that i wasn't yep. aware of which is a lovely little coincidence it is. Yeah. I, one of my favorite practices that you do that you did in Chapel Perilous was you made everyone, well, you made, you invited everyone at the beginning. I of rule the, with an iron fist. The beginning of each. <laughs> yes, exactly. You invited everyone to offer at the altar of Chapel Perilous something that we did not know. Yeah. And that, that was a, a beautiful exercise because it made us search for something 
And oftentimes the things that we don't know, we put those off to the side or we sweep them under the rug. And I think that what it can do is when we bring that into our awareness, we can realize that, oh, right now I'm offering up this thing that I don't know and I'm okay. Mm, yeah. And becoming familiar with that experience is, is very, it's liberating in my, in my opinion. I also see it yeah. as like a, um, and the reason I think of it as an offering is it's an, it's an offering to the community. It's like, let's, let's all be yes. honest about this. There's stuff we don't know. There's stuff each one of us here doesn't know. So let's, let's get some of those out. And then that, because there's always yeah. a sneaking suspicion that everyone else has got it all figured out and you're the only one who's floundering around. Um, so having that, like, that's what I always used as like the, the first thing to do in those sessions. Um, yeah. And the weird thing is, because I planned them, obviously I could have planned my answers in advance, but I didn't remember. I ran three sessions, each focused. So one focused on identity, one focused on um, empathy for people, other points of view, and one focused on the meaning crisis or yeah i don't know why i feel so weird calling it the meaning crisis because i don't actually i think that because i don't think it's a crisis of meaning i think it's a crisis of yearning for meaning i guess that's why i feel uncomfortable saying it and also because it's like uh, i love that i haven't watched all of those amazing videos that that guy who came up with the term made whose name's escaping me right now john Bervinke. Yeah, yeah, yeah him um he's yeah. amazing he didn't i don't know that he yeah i don't know that he came up with the meaning crisis moniker uh, but he certainly has taken the deepest dive that I've yeah. seen. Yeah, I haven't finished all of them either, but I think that, I, so I can't really speak to what the, the final conclusion mm. is. And it uh, seems rude just far, to watch the last video, which I have been tempted to do. Like, I'm going to sneak ahead. <laughs> I'm on episode probably 33 mm. or so. So I've put 30, I've devoted 33 hours of my life at least. I've re-listened to certain wow. episodes. So a minimum of 33 hours to this. And I, I'm heavily influenced by his his mode of thinking. Mm. Breaking the frame is something that he actually talks about. Oh, in, really? Maybe I haven't got that far yet. Yeah. When he's talking about what's called the nine, rock, nine dot problem, which is uh, how you... So there will be nine dots and you need to connect all of the dots with a certain number of lines. And the issue is that everybody always tries to stay within the box. Yeah. But the way to actually solve the problem is to break the frame. Nice. Yeah. So that that was one of the inspirations for this, uh, for this whole project. But yeah. So the meaning, I, I like what you're saying about the the yearning for meaning being the actual crisis. Uh, that that resonates with me on some level. Right now, what I'm seeing with the the meta rationalists, the the meta modernists, you know, all of these terms that are starting to come into the into the popular lexicon on Twitter, is that there there's some aspect of that project that's trying to find the meta narrative of the meta narratives, mm, yeah, and thinking that somehow that will that will give us some sense of meaning or something and. There's part of me that that resonates with that a little bit. I mean, you were just talking about chaos magic and kind of dis, disassembling the the constructions of the eye mm. that, I, okay, now you're the expert on this. How do you say his name? Alistair Crowley? Crowley, yeah. It rhymes. Crowley. Uh, so um, his poem about this, to clarify, is um, people yeah. call me Crowley because they wish to treat me foully. 
but actually it's Crowley because I am holy. He wasn't a great poet. Interesting. But that's a good way to remember <laughs> really it. not. It sounds like a third grader's rhyme. That's like but, the um, uh, uh, the only... I say he wasn't a great poet. I, I feel guilty now because I didn't read and enjoy a lot of his poetry. It's very funny and uh, scatological, um, but strange and never oh, gained um, the reception that he wished for it. Let's just say. Yeah, I believe it. The things that he was talking about, I mean, that's very in line with a lot of the, the Buddhist exercises that we do on retreat in terms of deconstructing the self, recognizing when we're having some reference to a particular I, referring something to referring to something as me, referring to something as mine. Yeah. And questioning those assumptions. That's that's a very in the tradition that I practice in, that's a very common exercise to he was so very informed by um, yeah. not so much by Buddhism, but by um, Hinduism and uh, Hinduism, like yeah. uh, yogic tantra type stuff. I mean, yoga people yeah. hate this connection and would prefer you don't mention it because no one wants to be associated with Alistair Crowley, <laughs> apart from me, apparently, because yeah. I talk about him all the time. I even bought a T-shirt with a picture and of Jimmy, him. Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy Page. Yeah. I mean, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan when I was in high school and Jimmy Page was like endlessly fascinated with the occult and... Alistair Crowley and things of that it's, nature. I, so. I can't believe how, until I started doing this podcast, um, I just did not, like there was a, t obviously when I was younger, I was into all this stuff, not Crowley particularly, um, but I was into all sorts of esoteric yeah. stuff. And then I, I became a skeptic and I just shut all that stuff out of my life. And I just felt like, I didn't think that there was no value in it, but I thought, why would I waste my time learning about these things? Um, when I actually, yes. I can give myself a science education, which I never really got at school and a critical thinking education, which again, I never really achieved, even like doing my, studying for my master's and I still had no idea like how my brain worked. But um, yeah, so, and then coming into the podcast and thinking, oh, this will be fun. It'll be like indulging in all my old habits and, you know, revisiting all these yep. things um, and meeting interesting people and stuff. And there is, yeah, I mean, it's encoded within a kind of a poetic expression often um which perhaps a lot of people take literally instead of poetically but if you put on your i'm indulging in this as art instead of i'm thinking they're saying something true about the world then yeah. then there's yeah there's so much value from all of this stuff that you really wouldn't like it this amazing insights i gained from um studying ufology for example just about like how we make sense of our place in the universe and stuff all these ideas that are being explored in an unconventional way very cool. <laughs> oh, man. At some point, I'd love to interview you about ufology, especially given the, the Pentagon papers that are coming out. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, but I mean, a lot of people are like, they've confirmed it. Like now, like all these conspiracy theories, they're like, no, there's like some respected physicists out here saying that they have pieces of ships built not on this earth. Yeah. Which is I haven't I haven't looked That's into that specific. Why? I mean, I've heard I've heard tell of it. Um, it's funny because yeah. one of the side effects of doing a podcast like the ones we do is we delve really deeply into a subject and then we have to get onto the next subject. So you don't necessarily yeah. keep up with the research, um, but you get emails from people, right, who just listened to the podcast you recorded last year and have an opinion and have yeah. some stuff you should definitely read. And I wish I had time to read it all. Um, so that's the sort of stuff that I get fired at me in my inbox, which is delightful. But um but yeah, there, is, there have been lots of times in the history of ufology where people have said, we've actually, we've got it this time. We have the, the thing, or we have some high up government official saying that the thing, or like 
there's been lots of we've got it now, guys, moments in the history of ufology. Yeah. And maybe this will be the one that tr- proves to be accurate. But um, maybe I'm skeptical. <laughs> mm. As one is yeah. want to be. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So I thought it'd be fun to give you a chance to play the the breaking the frame game, as I call it, <laughs> since you never got a chance to on the Stoa. Yay, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it is on hiatus right now from the Stoa. So I'm going on retreat for a month and also felt like uh, with Peter that it was a good stopping point at this point. So, okay. So this is a relational contemplative exercise. So I'm going to ask you some questions and we'll kind of contemplate through these things together. But uh, the first one is, tell me a view of the world that you previously felt confident about on which you later had a change of heart. And so this one, since we've already talked to through kind of the, the meta approaches, mm. was there any particular aspect, let's say, of like Wicca uh, or skepticism that was near and dear to you that you had a change of heart on? Oh, Again, I really, I could have, I have listened to your podcast. I listened to episode zero. So I was, I was aware that this was going to happen, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't prep. <laughs> um, it's better when it, it's better when it's impromptu because then oftentimes the, the most salient example rises to the top. Yeah. Maybe that's true for some people. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, so something that I was confident about that now I'm not so sure of, or now I don't believe at all. I would say something that you now believe something different. So you previously had a belief or orientation towards the world, and then that shifted to a new belief or orientation that is somehow distinctly different. Okay. um, So this is something that has come up in conversation with... um... Oh, this might be too meta, but this is just me. I'm afraid I am. I'm a meta being. <laughs> uh, something about the definition of belief. It's a question oh. that you can't help but avoid doing a podcast like mine. Um, yes. Cat will often tell me that she believes something. For example, she believes in astro- astrology. That's a big like. It's a thing she does. She's not just like reading yep. her things in the newspaper or whatever. Horoscope. She's yeah. very seriously into it, and it's quite a complicated craft um understanding it yes. all and putting it together so she believes in astrology and we've had many conversations about what the definition of belief was and i i kind of i guess i didn't really have a clear view on what the definition of belief was at all and then um reading up about street epistemology i came across peter bogosian's definition which is okay. pretending to know things you don't know faith that's his definition of faith um hmm. and the faith and belief I, mean, I don't even know if i can disentangle them um and now i think that both those words faith and belief have uh different definitions to what i thought they did i don't know what the definitions are but i'm really sure i was wrong about what i thought they were hmm. if you see what i mean sure so what before what was kind of your felt sense of what a belief was what sort of oh, yeah. like maybe even some examples of like that's a belief that's super simple for me and i again like maybe this will sound silly to people but uh i thought belief was something you are convinced is true about the world very that's simple yeah true. like the correspondence theory of belief you know like this is 
it, my, the thing in my head corresponds. I believe the thing in my head. I I'm convinced that the thing in my head corresponds to reality, like that could be measured objectively. That's what I thought a belief was. Yep. So when someone says, "I believe in fairies," for example. I thought they literally meant that they believed there were entities called fairies that lived in the world. Um, yes. And now I don't think that's true. Okay. So how did that, how did that view originally form? Well, I think, it, I think it got like codified by that thing that Peter Bogosian said, cause it's, it matched with what I thought. I'm very like, um, I like to know, I guess this is just because I'm a philosophy nerd, I like to know the definitions of words, like it's my big thing. And I feel like a bit lost often in conversations because people will start throwing around these long words and I don't know what they mean. And I, or even like short words that I don't know what they mean. Um, and people seem to yeah. be like way up here having a conversation about something in all this detail and they haven't defined their terms or at least they haven't told me what their terms are. <laughs> uh, so I'm lost. Um, so I guess... Yeah, I guess when I was when I believed in what I was describing before, which I think is a common belief, although obviously not all Wiccans, but many Wiccans believe about this energetic web of like magical energy. Um, I literally believed that was true. I did not think it was a metaphor. I believed it was true. Mm. Um, and when I told people that I believed it, I that's what I was trying to communicate. Um, yeah. And then the the faith pretending to know things you don't know how does that relate to belief i felt like it really did in an important way but i can't quite put my finger on it um because a lot of times when people have these street epistemology conversations they'll talk about all sorts of things you know like um uh, often christianity but other religions and beliefs in ufos and beliefs in spiritual healing and beliefs in all sorts of things and at the end of the day it comes round to the reason why you believe this is true is because you have something that they call faith um, or something that they're prepared to call faith after a bit of prompting, um, yep. whichever way. Uh, and, and then, and then the game, the name of the game is to say, well, do you think that's a good epistemology? Is faith a good epistemology? And the answer that yeah. most street epistemologists would probably instinctively come to is no, it's not a good epistemology. Like you don't use it when you buy a car, for example, you use evidence, reason, all those, you know, things you don't use faith and so therefore faith is not a good epistemology um so i had these that that that's what i accepted faith was and that's what i accepted belief was and those two things allowed me to um square off a big part of the world as not something that i should bother engaging with basically mm. um i mean obviously not i'm not saying that i didn't talk to people who had faith or beliefs or whatever um but i just didn't let my mind go there uh, I think that that really ties in nicely to the next question, which is why did you hold on to that view? And I think you just summed it up basically. It's like, it was a, it was an effective uh, complexity reducer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because it's, there's so much in all that stuff and it, you could, you could spend your whole life exploring it. It's, it's so much easier to just draw a line and say anything to do like, yeah. And, and yeah. it also, it, Feeling. it just caused a lot of misapprehensions, which, I think are in general very bad. Uh, like the kind of the straw men, the atheist build of believers. Um, because yeah. obvi obviously there are a lot of um, people who are religious who believe literally that God or gods or whatever it is, is real. There are people like that out there. But a lot of people um, 
are not really, when they say I believe in X or I have faith in X, they're not telling you that they think it's a fact that's objectively true about the world. And yeah. if, as an atheist, so you're talking, you're talking to a straw man at that point, um, for those people who yep. don't believe it literally. Um, and then you, there's nothing, there's nowhere to go on that. And I think that's, that's obviously bad because it's, it means we don't understand each other and we don't have empathy and all sorts of, you know, misunderstandings that can lead to people being nasty to each other. But in a way it's also quite good as an atheist community, if you want to keep your people, I don't, I'm not saying this is like a conspiracy or anything. I'm just saying you can see how yeah. this sort of tendency would have evolved because it keeps everyone separate. Um, and it's like, it's a little mechanism to keep people in that community. Like, don't look over there. All that is nonsense. It's all to do with belief and faith. Dividing yeah, line, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can see why that yes. sort of thing would be um, selected for, I guess. Um, and I don't think it's healthy, obviously. Uh, but I, yeah. So what led to that change? Oh. How did you move beyond that kind of definition of belief and view that, like, you could just ignore those things that people just believed and didn't necessarily provide empirical evidence. Yeah. I think, um, well, the podcast talking to Kat, she's an amazing person. Um, and very thoughtful, um, and has a completely different epistemological makeup, um, by which I mean, she has, uh, her like baseline settings are different to mine epistemologically. And she has different, um, values that are inspiring because she's also, obviously we all are, but she's consciously working on and thinking about her epistemology and she is, doing that through a different lens than I am. Um, I genuinely, I don't know. I think, I think I thought, and I know it's silly, but I think I did think this, that um, this podcast couldn't last because all I'd have to do is give like all the reasonable reasons for why she should be a skeptic. And then, you know, it would probably take some time because she'd be defensive or whatnot, but say like five episodes She'd be like, oh, well, I'm a skeptic too now. And then I, we'd have to close down the podcast because there's lots of the skeptic and the skeptic podcast already. Like, that's no fun. Uh, the skeptic and the skeptic yeah. podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, but that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. How did you get together with her in the first place? Like, you you had to, you know, if you'll allow me this, you had to kind of take a leap of faith yeah. in engaging with her on the podcast. Mm. How did you... Did you know each other before? Um, Did you meet at a conference? What? No, we met at Toastmasters, which is like this public speaking class thing. Toastmasters. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we were like, uh, everyone nice. there was like uh, baby boomer age men uh, trying to learn to do better presentations about, I don't know, boring shit, whatever they do. And then there was us like sitting at the back, you know, like in our leggings and jumpers with holes in, like rolling our eyes at everything. And generally being, you know, pissy little bitches, which is what we are. I mean, <laughs> people say it in the comments on our podcast all the time, and it's true. Uh, but yeah, so uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so I was like, "Oh, do you want to go for a drink?" And we went for a drink, and we have the same sense of humor. That's literally it. Um, mm. And it goes so far, so far to having a good relationship. And she's a genuinely interesting. I talked to her about this because I said to her. This is so weird because I really didn't think that I could be friends with someone with a fucked up epistemology like you. And she was like, yeah, I just think you've got your metrics for friendship wrong. Like you think friendship is about all these big values and stuff, but actually friendship, and she said this, and this is such a nice compliment. She said, it's just people are fun to play with. 
I was like, ah, this is why I love you. Yeah, she's fun to play with. Um, and I don't feel in danger. Like if I contradict her or say that sounds dumb, then she'll just laugh yep. or come back at me. You know, like it's it's not like she's never going to storm yeah. off or and we and I'm obviously similarly inclined. So. So, yep. yeah, it's funny because I've taken that orientation now to a lot of different aspects of my life. And yet I still fall into with romantic relationships, mm. your pillow talk example, yeah, where I think that there needs to be some sort of mutually agreed upon approach to the world mm. and things of that nature. But I'm very much starting to question that. And so, yeah, maybe I'll become more playful. And yeah, I think that's the, that's the hardest thing. But then it's like, what is the fundamental thing? And, and I had a, a moment last year... Um, because this is so personal to me. Like, I mean, I know I talk in the kind of yeah. meta way, but it's very like, yeah, it's very personal. So I went to a wedding last year of people I knew from when I was a teenager and I hadn't seen them or I hadn't seen a lot of the people at the wedding for many, many years. And um, it was just the most beautiful day, like glorious sunshine, English countryside. They had this little barn out in the middle of nowhere. It was just beautiful. And it's people I really love getting married. So it's very exciting. Um, and I arrive and the um, best man who is the groom's brother, one of the groom's brothers, um, said to me, oh, did you arrange this? Like gesturing to the weather. And I was like, what are you talking about, you weirdo? And then I realized that I hadn't spoken to him since last time he saw me, I was a witch. And I would have believed I could control the weather. <laughs> and I I kind of, like, I liked it. I laughed and I was like, I like yeah. the fact that he thinks of me that way. I don't feel on the need to correct that misconception. like." That's so It's kind of cute. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah, that's the whole. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Something about belief and faith changing. So what would you recommend to someone who currently holds your view in order for them to break or who currently holds your old view to enable them to break free from it? Okay. Um. So what has been really doing it for me lately is I've been listening to a lot of Christian radio. There's this particular show, it's a podcast, it's called Unbelievable, okay. it's very, very popular. Um, I started listening to it because it hosts debates between skeptics and atheists, so I was okay. like, great. But it's it's on... Christians and atheists? Yeah, that's what I said. No, that's not what I said okay. at all. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. That's I'm just I meant. making sure. Yeah, okay. Christians and atheists. Oh, oh, no, sometimes it's just religious people and atheists, but yes. it's... um. Uh, the host is a Christian. It's on a Christian radio station. Um, yep. And I don't, I, so I started listening to it because it was some person I liked, some skeptic or atheist debating someone. I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. But then I just really like, I like the host. He's just a genuinely nice guy and he has a nice way about him. And I started okay. listening to it. And at first I picked out all the the episodes, which were like, this is such practical, specific advice. <laughs> um, but I picked out all the episodes that were like, uh, uh, you know, like stuff that I already knew about, like, oh, look, there's one about the ontological argument. Let me listen to that one. Or there's one about this. There's one about mm -hmm. that. Um, because I'm quite familiar with, you know, or at least I, I consider myself because I, I've kind of like done work in that area of atheism, especially lately, actually. Um, well, not lately, but like a year ago, I did this big survey of um, atheists. I got like 850 okay. atheists to tell me why they let go of faith. It was fascinating. Loads of data. Very fascinating. Anyway, so yeah, I started listening to this and then... Um, I started genuinely like trying to suspend my disbelief when I heard the Christian side or the religious side. 
And I kept coming across these things that just didn't fit into my understanding of what faith or what belief was um, constantly. And I kept on thinking to myself, he's using that word wrong. And I was like, wait a minute, you're the atheist. Like he's the believer. <laughs> if he's using the word in that way, then he's probably using it right. Like I don't get to tell him how, do you know what I mean? Uh, yes. And then I started reading the, you know, I started just like following up when, when someone would recommend a text, when one of the Christian guys would recommend this text or that text, I'd be like, oh, I'll go and read that. Um, and I, I mm -hmm. just looked at stuff like, you know, good old Thomas Aquinas. He actually said, God isn't like a thing in the world. God's like a concept. Yeah. That was like his whole thing. And this is like way back in the day, um, obviously. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so Some buried somewhere in the Summa Theologica. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I. a massive, <laughs> massive. I had never read that. I never read any of that stuff. And I haven't read it now, but I've read right. extracts. Um, I haven't read any of that stuff. All I'd read was like Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, the classic. Um, yep. Because I was brought up atheist. Like, why would it occur to me to read the Christian texts? And I just assumed. Yes. And I, I mean, I don't know what the deal is with those guys. Um, I'm sure they're lovely, like interpersonally, one-on-one -on -one loveliness. But I think they misrepresent what believers believe quite often, of probably by accident or just to tidy things up and keep them simple. Um, yep. And then when you hear actual people talk and you realize, oh shit, they're not making a scientific argument. They never claim to be making a scientific argument. They're talking about meaning and describing the world and art and you know, beauty and poetry and these sort of things. It's like a different realm. Um, and we're trying yes. to, we're going in and saying, well, that's wrong. It's like, oh my God, there was this episode of a skeptic podcast uh, years ago and they analyzed the movie Prometheus and pointed out all the things that were wrong, like were factually incorrect about that movie. And I was just like, this is absurd. Like this has gone to the new levels of ridiculousness. It's a movie, it's art, it doesn't matter. Come on guys, yeah. even I don't do that. Like, and I, I'm the uber skeptic. Uh, and then, I, and then I, th I thought about that and I thought about often the way that we approach Christianity. And again, I'm not denying that there are lots of people who think it's literally true and that is a problem. Uh, but there are also a lot of people and if you consider, um, you know, if you look at the whole of history, a lot of people who are believers in all sorts of different religions who did not think it was literally true, Pro maybe even more of them than the literally true people. I have a feeling, I haven't read around enough to know if this is true, but I get a sense that perhaps this, like, what it says in our holy text is literally true is kind of like a modern thing. And maybe even mm. like, a. I, I mean, I, I just... I, this is a whole new area that I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I feel like the Protestant Reformation has something to do with it. That's all I'm saying. I think things changed yes. then quite dramatically. And then you have like the American take on all that and the sort of fundamentalist stuff. And it's all like, and we have this very narrow yes. definition of what religion is. It's a bullet pointed list of beliefs that you have to all tick off. And if you believe all of them, then check you are religious. When, you know, yep. different cultures, different times, different religions, it's been more of like a praxis. It's a way of life. It's funny because a lot of modern day preachers actually utilize that same, uh, that same methodology of like, here's the list of things that you must believe to be a Christian. Yeah. And they use that to kind of both drive people away who would, you know, lead their flock astray mm. and also to encourage cohesion within the group. Yeah. Right. So that's interesting. So we kind of talked about this before, but are there any mental patterns that kept you stuck before at playing your new view? And I want to actually raise one of them. Mm. This isn't something I normally do, but 
literal definitions of words. Love them. Do you feel like you've, yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like you've taken a, so there's this word belief or faith. And before you had one literal definition of it, and now you feel like you have another literal definition of it? Or do you feel like you have a more nuanced view of the definition of the word belief before? I think what's very uncomfortable, but I am like just forcing myself to accept, is there are no literal definition of words. (laughs) There's no dictionary in the sky, sad as it is to say, and everything's contextual. And that... um, I mean, it's a problem if you find it hard to read people, right? It's a problem because people use words and you don't know what they're saying. Um, And then you ask them what they're saying and they won't even then like define it properly. Um, This is a, this is a me problem, but it's probably a lot of people problem, but it's like, it's a lot of people. Yeah. So there, there are two types of people in this world. I'm going to (laughs) divide them up for you right now, real nice and cleanly. That's how I like it. There are those people who, like to understand what other people are saying and demand that they have literal definitions Mm. for their words. And then there are other people who just make up those literal definitions, regardless of whether or not that's what the actual, the other person is actually saying (laughs) in their head. And they're like, Oh yeah, this is definitely what they mean because this is my understanding of the word. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe like I, I was the making up, well, I wasn't making them up because they were informed by what I was reading. But I, ha- I yes. had the definitions and I was like applying them to people. And now I'm I'm trying to become more of the person who asks what people's definitions are. And then probably the yeah. third stage is accepting that you're never really going to like come to a meeting of minds because we're all desperately alone inside our heads and we can never really connect with each other because language doesn't mean anything. Indeed. But Indeed. maybe I'll never get to that stage. What is the point of podcasts? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, I haven't, re- I haven't really figured it out, but um, I, I, I've, I've, come to an awareness awareness that I have a problem and that's the first step (laughs) addicted to the literal meaning of words yeah let's get that added to the DSM (laughs) I don't know if they use the DSM in the NHS yeah yeah yeah, they do probably not they do do the same oh interesting I I believe they do I don't know I have to check that now but I believe they do okay we don't really do that like um uh, thankfully, I think, because I think it's very bad for people. Uh, it, yeah. We don't give people diagnoses in the same way, because I think in the US, mm-hmm. the thing, you have to give someone a diagnosis so that you can authorize the whatever the insurance to give them the medication. Whereas obviously we don't have that situation here. So you very rarely get a diagnosis. You just get the pills and then you Google, oh, what do these do? Oh, I must have generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a whole nother podcast. Okay. So the second part is where we now, uh, we take this uh, examination of the way that we broke out of our old ways of thinking, and we're going to apply it to something that we hold to be true right now. Mm. So in this one, you're going to tell me something that you know, and it doesn't, yeah. That's really this hard because is... you got me at a strange point in my life where I'm like, yes. I don't know if I know anything right now. So, Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So if, it, if that's the case, and I've often encouraged people to do this, you can use the example of I don't know anything. Mm. I know that I don't know. The old Socrates example, right? Yeah. If you've, and even if you feel uncomfortable saying I know that, you can try it on for size. 
right? So you can just pick something that you might feel is true and then try it on for size saying, I know that. Okay. Okay. Um... So I know that blank. Then in the second part, I'm going to state as best as I'm able a plausible opposing view. So I'm going to steal man and opposing view to whatever it is that you state. And then in the third part, you are going to, in an er, in as earnest and good faith way as possible, are you on behalf of the opposing view? Okay. Um, and then in the final step, I am going to argue on behalf of your original view. And you can sit there and feel how it feels to see, to hear somebody uh, arguing on behalf of that original position and seeing whether or not there are differences or similarities see how that makes you feel and how it might reinforce those beliefs. Oof, okay. This is a really good exercise. Um, I, I want to think of something instead of going with the, I know nothing thing, but I can't think what that something might be. Um, okay. What feels true to you right now? Oh, but, oh my God, feels. What do you mean by feels? <laughs> oh, so when you think this thing, I can define that for you. Great, since I please. know that you're, since I know that you're addicted. <laughs> Uh, so when I say that it feels true, what I mean is that when you think that thing, you might get a sense of relief or, or uh, a relief from the, the grinding of the gears, for example. Mm. So when you think this, thing's, this thing, it doesn't necessarily prompt a large amount of questioning. This might be very difficult for a skeptic, but I'm sure there's something in there. Okay, some I, I, unexamined no, I belief. I have something, okay, and I, I realized it was unexamined recently, thanks to this uh, amazing Christian radio show, actually. Uh, and that Wonderful. is that, I, and I don't know if I'm using the terms correctly, but I think I'm pretty much a materialist. Okay. Like, I think um, yep. matter, I mean, there's like dark matter and stuff. I don't know. I don't know what's going on yes. outside in space. But I think, like, I'm made of meat, like everything's made of something matter. And I don't think there's like another layer on top of that. Um, mm. Like I, yeah, I think I'm a materialist. I think I'm a materialist if that's what a materialist is. So state phrasing in the, I know that. Oh, I, I, I know that. I know that everything is made of matter and there is a, Oh shit. Even as I'm saying it, I feel a fool. Um, and that there is no, nothing else is going on. Everything's made of matter. I'm going to choose uh, what I think is an old philosophical argument, okay? Okay. Could it be the case that, for example, those things which are thoughts, mm. concepts, you said it before, consensus reality, mm. for example, right? That consensus reality and the different concepts that we have of the world, that these are real, they exist, immaterial things um i'm not quite sure what you mean you mean they're contingent on the material yeah. things they exist in so they're definitely i mean we can we can look at this and see that they are connected right but and maybe they're dependent on material things for their existence right mm -hmm. but they exist and yet are immaterial in their existence mm. right there are these like for example worldviews ideologies christianity yeah. is a thing that exists without a material existence christianity is not the thing that is necessary it's not the bible yeah it's not the people that are christians christianity is a is a thing so now 
I've already started to argue on your behalf, but <laughs> okay. So how now, would you argue in favor of that? I'm argue, arguing in favor of the idea that concepts are things that are that, they're immaterial. That, they're things, immaterial yes. things. Yeah, because they are like um, they are something. They're like something that matter produces, but that isn't matter. So obviously, like Christianity is an idea that we think about with our brains, which are made of meat. But the idea isn't made of meat. The idea is like a um, a little pattern or a little sprinkling of something. <laughs> sprinkling of something. It's something that's coming up out of the meat. Um, and it can't. You can't like. There's no way I could look at it through a microscope, obviously. Um, but then again, I don't know because it's like. Okay, so this brings me back around to chaos magic. So. And there's this idea. Okay, so this is how this is how I argue in defense of this. There's this idea, and I think it's from Alan Moore, who's like one of my favorite. I mean, he's everyone's favorite comic book artist, right? Um, but he's also a chaos magician, um, uh, and he he has this idea about like uh, idea space. So basically, everything in your brain that's your idea space, and it's populated with all sorts of ideas. It might have religious ideas. It might have accurate ideas about the world. Oh God, like the way I put on, there's there on that side and these are on that side. Anyway, but it's good. your idea space. It's full of ideas, right? Yes. And then there's like a collective idea space that all humanity shares, which is kind of like culture. Um, and that's where your ideas from your idea space can interact with other people's ideas from other people's ideas space. And his idea is as an artist, it's like our duty to go out and venture around idea space and see what we can find, like encounter all these things. Um, mm. So his idea is, oh my God, this is so off topic, um, but I'll just quickly say it because I want to say it. Um, so okay. his idea is that uh, these ideas, and I think this is analogous to like, oh, Susan Blackmore, who is my hero, um, analogous to her idea of memes. Um, there's like competition going on in the idea space, just like Susan Blackmore will tell you happens amongst memes. And he thinks that once an idea becomes complicated enough, complex enough, it becomes conscious. Mm -hmm. And that's what chaos magicians would call an egregore. So it's kind of like... Say that word again? Egregore. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, though, so don't repeat me. How does this spell? E-G-E-G-O-E. E-Greg, like the name Greg or, I think. Egregore. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, this is, it's like uh, you also hear some occultists talk about them as tulpas, thought forms. Right. And I, I guess uh, I always got to like, so I don't, I don't think I actually believe they're conscious, but I do believe that ideas are very important and they shape the world. And like everything yes. that we ever create as human beings was an idea first. So I, maybe they're not. Thin. And ideas in your, in your, this definition mm. necessarily immaterial, not a, not material things. And yet they have some existence. There's some, form to them yes. although not a corporeal form yeah i think maybe i should have been like i should have defined what i meant by material yes. more clearly but i don't know if i feel comfortable calling ideas things but they're certainly not not things so uh because in my mind thing equals material i guess um Interesting. but they're, they're definitely they are they are forces in this world that changes and change the material world, obviously, because if you have a great idea about how to build a bridge and then you go and build one, that's changed the material world. And it's come yes. from the immaterial world of thoughts and ideas, but that immaterial world is produced by the material world. So maybe there is a, there's yes. a substratum of immaterial reality that is dependent on material reality, but we're in a feedback loop with it. 
So, yeah. Is this so, Cartesian dualism? Oh, no, no. I don't know. <laughs> don't accuse me of that. How dare you? <laughs> uh, there is mind stuff and then there is oh, body stuff. Oh, yeah. When you put it like that, it sounds dumb. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Okay, so now I'm going to argue on behalf of your uh, your original argument okay. that all there is is the material. Yeah. The corporeal, right? So what I would say is that those ideas don't actually have any existence outside of the materials which produce them. This is This is an interesting thing is that, I mean, my understanding of prevailing physical theories of the universe is that at the bottom of all mass and and matter is energy, mm. right? Which is not actually physical form. Is it not physical form? Yeah. Uh, it's it's equivalent to, so you have the E yeah. equals MC squared, right? Energy equals mass times some constant squared, right? Yeah. But I think that it just condenses into physical form and that it would not be uh, it would not be like, let's say that somehow we could take all of the energy in the universe and make it extremely diffuse. Right. Rather than tightly vibrating against each other, causing form to arise. I don't think necessarily that form would arise. Right. Mm. So we have to for this take energy to be something that is material. Yeah. Uh, but if we allow for that, energy is material and it's all condensed together. Mm. It gives rise to these things that are ideas, but ideas are necessarily that which is encoded in the material. Yeah. So it's the neurological patterns in the minds of all of the living beings on the earth. And maybe out there, we can ask the UFOlogists. (laughs) But it's all necessarily encoded in material form. And so it would be no different than the Bible, for example, which is the materially encoded form of Christianity. Uh, That would be my argument on behalf of it. That's nice. I find that very convincing. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. Uh, you know That's what? Great. It made me feel. I think you were just gonna ask me how it felt to hear that, right? I was gonna ask. Yeah, I was gonna ask how it felt, and also whether or not that uh, jives with your uh, the way that you thought about it previously. Um, the whole energy thing um threw me through a bit of a loop because uh, I don't know anything about physics, so yeah. Mm. I mean, like when you get down that small, I don't know what's going on. I mean, when you get down, yeah. Yes, yeah, smaller than a matchbox. I, I don't, don't think anybody truly yeah. does yet, but I mean, the, the general consensus yeah. that I'm aware of is that it's all just energy that like is really mm. vibrating tightly and that that like Yeah, uh, that definitely that definitely sounds plausible. Yeah. I would, no, I'm not I'm not saying I don't believe it. I just I my Generates my brain form, yeah. can't look at those things right now. It doesn't know those things. Um mm. silly brain. Uh, but uh, the the thing about so what it made me feel was like when I was talking about the idea space stuff, I felt embarrassed, defensive, lost. When you said what you just said, I was like, oh, I'm coming home, 
coming home to lovely materialism where everything makes sense and everything's made of stuff and nothing's made of nothing and there are no like conscious <laughs> you know like conscious thoughts operating outside our yes. control um yeah comforting for that's yeah um comforting. Uh, yeah I, that was my emotional response um and it pretty much describes the way i think about it like i think thoughts and even like the self i think that um it's like running right running doesn't running doesn't exist it's something we do with our meat and i think thinking mm. doesn't exist it's something that is done i'd hesitate to say we do because obviously i feel the same way about the self but it's something that is done through yes. through this meat in our brain um the meat yeah uh so yeah i don't yeah a very disorienting experience to be put through <laughs> that's the intent so i'm glad that i'm glad that that happened but the key thing is right this is meant to at least my intention behind it mm -hmm. is to get us more comfortable with that disorienting experience so that we don't cling and get trapped in our prisons of you know particular ideologies because it can be a very uncomfortable thing to experience but if we constantly flinch and shy away from those experiences, then we can really get, we can get trapped in things that don't serve us or others. Yeah. It's so funny because it is exactly what I was trying to do with Chapel Perilous. Um, but in that situation, I was leading the workshops, so I didn't have to do the exercises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah. yeah. All, all the, all the like, um, intellectual stimulation and none of the hard, you know, emotional disorienting work. It was perfect. Exactly. <laughs> yeah that's where that's the medicine though i mm. think that's that's where the, the rubber meets the road yeah so. awesome is there anything that you want to plug is there anything you're working on right now that we should look forward to and check out um i mean I, we mentioned some of your prior projects and you can find that on your website yeah rebecca uh, on canvas.com oh no rebecca on yeah. paper i changed it because i used to work on canvas more but now i work more on uh, paper so it's rebecca on paper.com uh got it yeah uh well, the thing I'm working on right now is like a massive project that's not going to be finished forever. So there's not much point in talking about it. But I'm working on a graphic novel um, about free will oh, okay. because, you know, uh, what better subject for a comics artist? <laughs> uh, got it. Yeah, but it will, it, the thing about graphic novels is they take 10 years to write. I'm writing and drawing um, and then they're read in like two hours and forgotten. So <laughs> it's the most it's the most ridiculous thing to be engaged in. Um, but it's very fulfilling. And I love being able to combine storytelling and philosophy and art. So that's, but yeah, don't get too excited. It'll be a couple of years at least. A couple of years. I'll be waiting with bated breath. <laughs> and then, and then people... hold my breath. Just yeah, please don't hold your breath. Bait it. Yeah, I'm uh, just going to bait it. And then, and then check out my podcast. That's, that's the main other project that I've got going at the moment. I've got another couple of things in the, in the wings, hoping to come back around to Chapel Perilous, do some more work on that. Yep. Um, but I'm sure I'll mention that on my Twitter which is at Rebecca on paper. Uh, so yeah, but it's just been a delight I to talk it. to you. I, like it's so it's a delight for so me as well. cool that we're like accidentally come to the same place in our development and then happen to meet each other. I mean, Kat would call it synchronicities. I'll just say it's a, lov yeah. a lovely coincidence. <laughs> it is a lovely coincidence. We got to make sure that we don't accidentally reinforce any, uh, you know, bad epistemologies within each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be very cautious. You, your about listeners that. can Always keep us honest. Guard. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Put in the comments all the shit that you oh, think no, we're wrong about. Don't. We invite it. <laughs> all the shit that he's talking about. Leave my shit unturned. <laughs> thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. And definitely check out her website. It's amazing. I love it. Especially how to change minds. It was inspiring to me and got me to loosen up my, my Jenga blocks a little bit. <laughs> so that's great. I gave the beast a steak and I gave the uh the prince uh, a line of coke <laughs> yeah that's about right <laughs> exactly and now they're both satisfied so <laughs> he's gonna need some more coke very soon <laughs> don't we all <laughs> yes okay thank you so much rebecca i appreciate it thank you bye thanks for listening if you'd like to see more from breaking the frame please visit breakingtheframe.org There you'll find writings, guided meditations, events, and other resources for learning to navigate between worldviews.